a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Whether you are a uh, long-time wrong thinker or just uh, wrong think curious, I'm glad you found this program. Look, if you're tired of uh, that constant drumbeat of fear and sensationalism, I'm inviting you to come dance to a different tune. Pull up a chair, find courage, find camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers, and claim your heritage as a free individual. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. Govern Your Income, Sewing and Quilting Center, HSL Ammo, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Life Saving Food, and also Monticello College. So, where to begin today? I mean, there's no shortage of problems out there. I'm not going to just sit there and dwell on, here's another thing that went wrong, and... This is something else that sucks because, you know, we, we probably get more of that than we like, even from this program. And I, and I, try, to, I try to strike that balance between, okay, we're informed and we're depressed. <laughs> but uh, it can be a really tricky line to walk. I wanted to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the Constitution. And believe it or not, this is an interesting subject, even among people who love freedom, even among people who favor maximum freedom. Not everybody appreciates the Constitution. Now, in interest of full disclosure, I was raised as a Mormon, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and as part of my religious tradition is the understanding that uh, the Constitution was a document which allowed, essentially, the, the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's kind of a fundamental part of what I was raised to believe, that God raised up the founding generation that uh, that he planted in the hearts of those men, the love of freedom and the ability to secure that freedom. And I understand not everybody's going to believe this, and that's that's fine. I'm not insisting that you have to. But I would ask you to consider this. The Constitution was uh, written and signed about, uh, I'm just going to round it off here, roughly 240 years ago. It, we're, we're coming up fast on the 240-year anniversary. So in that time, how many times have we changed our, our whole form of government? Now, this is not to suggest the United States has absolutely been steady and nothing has changed. The war between the states, Abraham Lincoln's uh, War of Involuntary Union, did change us from a federal system to more of a national system. And that's something we've discussed in other episodes of the show. But for the most part, the stability, the prosperity, the limited government, and this is the key to the Constitution, the limits that it places on government have remained in force for the most part, for, you know, the better part of the last 250 years. That's quite an accomplishment. When you look around at other countries, ask yourself, for instance, how many times has Italy or France or or even Germany changed their actual form of government? The answer is quite a lot. Now, that doesn't mean just because it was written on paper, you know, therefore we're going to stay like this forever and ever. Amen. No, uh, the Constitution was actually uh, created in such a way. uh, this This is the thing I think people fail to understand. 
It wasn't written to give us freedom. It was written to call into existence a government that could unite the several states, at least in those common areas of interest. So it's it's a compact. It's a multi-party contract between the people of those states. And as you read in the preamble, it's, you know, to, to uh, form a more perfect union, to establish the blessings of liberty, not just for them, but for their posterity that would follow them, to uh, provide for the common defense, you know, defend the nation's borders, defend its its uh, coastlines, and so forth. Promote the general welfare, which is not provide for everybody, but to to make sure that uh, that there was stability in our systems of governance. Leaving most of that governance to the states and local governments, and again, just those few defined areas where the federal government would would be considered supreme. And to secure the blessings of liberty, it's right there. It's right there. That's the the whole purpose for the contract is listed right there in the preamble. So, I mean, think about what what they were trying to accomplish. I have to go through the song in my head. Let's see. The people in order to form more establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. Forgot those two. Um, Provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. I think that covers it. But do you see the flow of power? It called into existence the federal government. In other words, the federal government is the creature, not the creator. That power came from the states and the people. The people give power to their state governments. God gives inalienable rights to the people. And that's how the flow of power goes. Now, you can tell that's been inverted over time. But I guess the point I'm trying to make here is some people are very much against the Constitution. And and I love Lysander Spooner on many, many subjects. On this one, I'm still trying to, to deal with the cognitive dissonance of what he says because I, I, I don't know how to refute what he's saying. He says, well, the Constitution either was, was, uh, in t- it was written loosely enough to allow the kind of wiggle room and abuse that we have seen from the federal level or it was powerless to prevent it. But he says either way, he says it's, it's not fit you know, to be the, the governing foundation of our of our society. Now, again, I'm going to disagree with him on the count that I don't think that uh, we need to throw it out. I believe as far as uh, documents that that established a form of government, it's, pro- it's probably the best thing that has come along to date. Now, that doesn't mean that and nothing will ever improve on it. I think it's actually, as, as my friend Connor Boyack points out, it was likely a great starting point for us. And if, if the gift of freedom, if that gift of liberty is something that, that God would give to people who are willing to live up to its principles and practices, then I would expect uh, there are probably ways to improve even upon the Constitution, which, by the way, the founders wisely left an amendment process in that document should things ever need to change. Like, this, for instance, if slavery ever became you know, a non-thing or something that uh, that was not embraced by people or the, or the society, that they could fix that. If women didn't have the right to vote, for instance, you know, that's something that could be addressed through later amendments. If we wanted to make people stop drinking alcohol. That, okay, well, that one that one didn't work out so well, but you, you get the picture. So I've got a great essay here from Huck Davenport on the single most important thing we can do to save the Constitution. And this is, this is not 
you know, insisting that everybody take that same worldview that, well, you know, God had a hand in this. Um, Again, in my religious tradition, we are taught that uh, the Constitution was actually instrumental to God's plans for this country. Now, some people will think that's absolutely blasphemous. But uh, I will tell you this. I've seen this. I've seen with my own eyes. I have experienced it myself. God is about liberty. And, and nothing has cemented this more in my mind than, uh, than being present at Bundy Ranch, being friends with Ryan Bundy for many years now, being present at the Bundy family's trial when the federal government was doing everything in its considerable power to bulldoze these people and bury them. And it failed. The pit that it dug for the Bundy family ended up being the pit that those prosecutors themselves fell into. I was there in the courtroom four years ago when the judge announced, actually it's almost been five years now, when the judge announced that, uh, that the, the case would be dismissed with prejudice. And I don't care if this makes some people uncomfortable, but uh, God's spirit was in that courtroom that day. That was an amazing experience. If you weren't there, don't tell me that it wasn't. I was there. I know what I saw, I know what I heard, I know what I felt. So when we come back from the break, got this article from uh, from Huck Davenport. This is from AmericanThinker.com, the single most important thing we can do to save the Constitution. So despite some of my misgivings about how, yeah, it's been abused. Yes, uh, the consolidationists uh, like Alexander Hamilton, among others, who, who had a hand in its crafting... They did carry the day, and by labeling themselves as Federalists and uh, those who were not so sure about where this was going as anti-Federalists, they kind of won a little bit of a moral victory there. And yet, time has shown the anti-Federalists who were concerned that the federal government might slip its limits, that it might uh, get out of its restraints and go on a bit of a bender, well, history has shown they were right. Like I say, we'll come back to this in some detail in a few moments. I probably I will not be as uh, religious in that uh, next segment. But you have to understand, I'm coming at this from the idea that uh, it's not just a matter of, yeah, man, you know, this is pretty great for human government. I'm actually suggesting God wants us to be free. The question is, are we willing to live up to what it takes to be a free people? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's dive right in. Huck Davenport's excellent article, The Single Most Important Thing We Can Do to Save the Constitution. There is a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com if you want to you know, follow along here. Huck Davenport says, If James Madison rose from his grave today, he'd be astonished. Not that a demented, corrupted scoundrel is now serving in the same office he once held as astonishing as that is, nor that the federal government had metastasized into a liberty-devouring leviathan that towers over his great state of Virginia. What would surprise him is that after nearly 250 years, his constitution, no matter how tattered and torn, has endured. Now, the classrooms have abandoned an appreciation for the profound genius of the founders, 
and the institutional gifts they gave us. Instead, classrooms breed contempt for our history. The founders' priceless legacy is the notion that government is established to protect men's liberty. And because men are no angels, that government must be limited, accounted, or accountable, rather, and divided. Huck Davenport says even today the most elementary constitutional lesson is probably still taught. The legislative branch makes the laws, the executive branch enforces the laws, and the judicial branch adjudicates the laws. But today, that's a lie. Unlike the obvious panoply of deceit cascading through it from every corner of the government and complicit news media, this lie, although more toxic to our Constitution and more dangerous to our freedom, goes largely unrecognized. We have an all-encompassing de facto fourth branch of government, and that is the administrative state, the magnum opus of the progressive movement. And the movement's name itself, he says, is diabolical. I mean, who isn't for progress? Faster, bigger, better. That's the zeitgeist of America. But the progressives wanted a different type of progress, to progress beyond the Constitution, beyond government limits. Teddy Roosevelt was our first progressive president, but his real damage was running for a third term under the Bull Moose Party, thereby splitting the Republican ticket and ushering in Woodrow Wilson, a true progressive. He was an intellectual blinded by his good intentions and bred with a malevolent contempt for a constitution that obstructed his ambitions. Wilson, our only president with a Ph.D., indisputable proof it should be disqualifying, was corrupted at Johns Hopkins University. John Hopkins University by a faculty heavily influenced in the Hegelian tradition. That's a belief in an all-encompassing organic state as opposed to American individualism. Wilson's 294-page thesis was an all-out assault on our Constitution. It said things like, quote, The period of Constitution-making is past now. We have reached a new territory in which we need new guides, the vast territory of administration. End quote. See, Wilson viewed the founders' separation of powers as an unpleasant wearing friction and depriving expert administrators of the means of making its authority complete and convenient. See, to Wilson, the Constitution was this anachronistic relic written in the age of fighting kings and wholly incompatible with the modern day. Appealing to the science of the day, he claimed, the government is not a machine but a living thing. It is accountable to Darwin, not Newton. Living political constitutions must be Darwinian in structure and in practice. They must evolve. Now, Article 5 of the Constitution describes precisely how it might evolve, but impatient for change, Wilson had a better idea. All that progressives ask or desire is permission to interpret the Constitution according to the Darwinian principle. Oh, so modest, so scientific. But what Wilson wanted was to radically restructure it. If it could not stretch itself to the measure of the times, it must be thrown off and left behind. Wilson wanted the government to be run by an administration of executive agents virtually supreme in all things. At his inauguration, it's a wonder the good book itself didn't leap from his hand as he swore to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Now, despite Wilson's scholarly rhetoric, he was only mildly successful in his diabolical assault on liberty. As history has repeatedly shown from the Reichstag fire to 9-11 to COVID, it takes a crisis for men to willingly surrender their freedom. And for progressives, <clears throat> that crisis was the Great Depression. 
Wilson was the father of the administrative state, but FDR was its architect. For an unprecedented four terms, FDR interpreted a new constitution complete with a fourth branch. A branch where executive, legislative, and judicial power were all wrapped up into one. The progressive's dream of efficiency was the founder's nightmare of tyranny. FDR gave us an alphabet soup of virtually unchecked agencies whose experts could regulate every aspect of human life. To understand the scale of the outrage, the Constitution was written on four pages. The U.S. Code, the law Congress wrote, is 2,652 pages. The Code of Federal Regulation, that is the law of the administrative state, written by unelected bureaucrats, approved by no one, accountable to no one, is 175,496 pages. No better example of the unconstitutional tyranny of the administrative state is the harrowing story of Hillsdale College. Founded in 1844 on the principle of furnishing all persons who wish, irrespective of nation, color, or sex, a literary and scientific education, it was the first to educate both freed slaves and women, even before the Civil War. In the mid-1970s, the Department of Health and Education, Health Education and Welfare insisted that because Hildale received federal funds, it was required to execute a Title IX compliance form that would have subjected it to all federal regulations. By the way, that requirement, incidentally, originated in Health Education and Welfare, not Congress. So the college argued, however, it did not receive federal funds. Instead, some of its students received federal student loans. After six years of fighting at the bureaucratic level, Hillsdale finally put the matter before a real Article III court. However, this was not the path to easy resolution. The system is set up so that the process is the punishment, insofar as it bankrupts people fighting the government. In one wetlands case, the EPA demanded $37,500 a day for noncompliance with the potential of a failed Article III appeal doubling the penalty. It's hard to win when you're playing on their field, right? Hillsdale's loyal supporters made it possible to fight on. In the Sixth Circuit, Hillsdale defied the odds and won again, but a similar case that Groves Community College brought in the Third Circuit failed. So with a conflict in the two circuits, the matter finally ended before the Rehnquist Supreme Court, which sadly ruled with the agency. If one student took a dime of federal money, then the school must comply. Unbroken, Hillsdale and Grove, now along with 16 other courageous colleges, now refuse to allow a single federal penny to enter its school directly or indirectly. Smart move. So, Madison's constitution has survived, even if in practice, it's unrecognizable from his original vision, but within it lies the blueprint for returning liberty to we the people. Today, one of the most important administrative state cases sits before the, the Supreme Court, asking whether the agency should be given complete deference Chevron deference for deciding ambiguities and omissions in Article I law. And while the entire administrative, administrative state needs to be abolished, just as it didn't appear overnight, it's not going to recede overnight as well. The first small step back from the abyss may start with this decision. To paraphrase the great Ronald Reagan, if fascism ever comes to America, it will come in the form of an administrative state. So, OSHA, <laughs> that's part of the administrative state. Have, uh, have you, uh, you heard? You know, three different courts struck down Biden mandates. One court now has said, no, but OSHA can, in fact, insist that any company over 100 employees make sure that uh, all of its employees 
have vaccination before they can be allowed to work. That's the case that's going to the Supreme Court, and it's it's going to be heard, and probably uh, there's going to be a ruling sooner than later. They're expediting the hearing of this. I don't want to be a pessimist, but uh, I'm thinking the Supreme Court has been pretty good at providing legal cover for whatever the federal government wants to do for quite some time. And I'm guessing this isn't going to be an exception. Now, that doesn't mean, therefore, you and I are bound. After all, the Constitution does not apply to us. Its purpose is to limit the federal government. You and I are still pretty well free to do what we need to do. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in my show notes. Click on that link. Keep in mind that uh, you can still score a great deal on food storage, but you need to jump on this one quickly. So the special right now is a 10% discount, free shipping, no sales tax. That's through Christmas Eve if you use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. Now, you don't have to buy a whole year's supply at once. I mean, you can if you want to. There are people who are doing that. Frankly, they've looked around us and said... Maybe I will just to, you know, cover my bets here. I'm going to I'm going to make sure that we have what we need for a rainy day. But if you're just looking to fill in some of the gaps in your own food storage program, they've got a lot of things to choose from. I'd love to save you some money in the process. Use the coupon code HIDE at checkout for the 10% discount, free shipping and no sales tax. Again, that's lifesavingfood.com. Isn't it weird how so many people perceive a political stance in uh, whether or not a person is for or against the various COVID mandates. That's been a very uh, curious uh, aspect of the, of the whole COVID lockdown mentality as well. You know, if you don't wear a face mask, you're obviously a Trumper. But it's entirely possible to oppose mandates and not be a Trump fan. I've got a great explanation here from uh, Donald J. Boudreau, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. It's titled Trump, COVID, and Despotism. And he says, I continue to be at a loss to explain the support of so many people for and the silence of so many people or so many other people in the face of COVIDocratic tyranny. There's, that's a nice turn of phrase. When at a loss to explain, one naturally experiments with possibilities. So here's one possibility for the U.S. experience. Some of the people who support COVID restrictions or who see in them nothing ominous are blinded by a fear greater than their fear of COVID-19. This greater fear is that that of being thought of by others and by themselves to be insufficiently hostile to Donald Trump and Trumpism. Now, because state governments that imposed only relatively light COVID restrictions were more likely to be red than blue, and because the mainstream narrative from early on cast Trump with the anti-lockdowners, Many people with antipathy to Trump apparently concluded that lockdowns and other COVID restrictions are acceptable for the simple reason that these measures are opposed by Trump and his base. So the thinking seems to have been this. 
To be pro-Trump is to be anti-science. Therefore, to be anti-Trump is to be pro-science. And to be pro-science specifically is to be pro-Fauci, Burks, CNN, and the New York Times, because these persons and media are anti-Trump. And people reach this conclusion without much investigation into the realities of COVID restrictions or of Trump's actual role in affecting a response. Now, careful investigation of the government's responses reveals that these were and remain dangerously disproportionate to the dangers posed by COVID. As for Trump, he played a key role in implementing lockdowns. I'm just going to add as an aside, he also has stumped for the vaccines. Although I don't I don't know if he has stumped for the mandates, but he has definitely towed the line on oh, the vaccine is great. Don't argue against the vaccine. You're playing into their hands, which, by the way, gets him booed even by his supporters. That's got to be some, you know, industrial strength, cognitive dissonance going on in their heads. Anyway, Donald Bordreau says, reviewing Scott Atlas's new book, A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America, John Tierney writes, but Atlas lays the ultimate blame for the lockdowns, a crime against humanity, on Trump himself because he allowed Dr. Deborah Burks and her allies to remain in charge. Atlas writes, this president, widely known for his signature, your fired declaration, was misled by his closest political intimates, all for fear of what was inevitable anyway, skewering from an already hostile media, end quote. No matter, says Donald Boudreau, it seems that starting in spring 2020, hordes of people, many of whom would otherwise have protested the horrifying expansion of government powers and the tasering of civilization, either vocally or silently, supported COVID restrictions, convinced that these restrictions were wise and justified or at least tolerable because these were thought to be opposed by Trump and his base. Well, whatever were and are the dangers to civilization posed by Trump and his supporters, these dangers are less extreme than are the dangers posed to civilization by supporters of lockdowns, vaccine mandates, and many other COVID restrictions. COVIDocratic tyranny is no more justified by science than are any of the other wrong-headed notions peddled by Trumpians. Yet the consequences of covidocratic tyranny are far more ominous than are the likely consequences of any policies that can reasonably be supposed to come to pass from Trump and company. On the science front, one of the differences between supporters of covidocratic rule and Trumpian is that the former have stronger footholds in institutions traditionally associated with science and a more virulent will to control or even recreate society with a social engineering scheme. Much progressive talk today of transforming society into a safe, equitable, and inclusive heaven on earth is as detached from reality as are many Trumpian follies, but even more threatening. Yet because progressives, unlike Trumpians, are presumed by the intelligentsia to be well-intentioned, highly informed, and objective, and because social engineering schemes conform with sacred superstitions, progressive policy demands are widely perceived as appropriate. Now, these sacred superstitions hold that society is either inert or destructively chaotic to the extent that ordinary men, women, and children aren't coercively prescribed and proscribed in fine detail by the progressive state. Opposition to these anti-liberal demands is regarded by progressive intellectuals as anti-progress, anti-science, and of course, anti-intellectual. Donald J. Boudreaux says, look, starting even before Trump's presidency, readers of my blog, Cafe Hayek, found 
harsh criticisms of Trump, especially on the two policy issues about which he seems to care the most, trade and immigration. Trump's demeanor is appalling, his ignorance formidable, his megalomania insufferable, and his venality vast. And because, as Scott Atlas reports, Trump foolishly acquiesced to Fauci and Birx's crime against humanity, Trump bears much of the blame for America's overreaction to COVID. Oof, that's, that's a hard pill for folks to swallow. I don't think he's wrong, though. But Donald Boudreaux says, As much as I fear Trump and the nationalist right's assault on liberal values, I now fear even more the rising authoritarianism in response to COVID. The fact that most supporters of today's COVID authoritarianism are also opponents of Trump does not render this authoritarianism acceptable. He says today's situation is all the more dangerous precisely because thou, those now running the show, compared to Trump, who let's not forget is no longer in power, seem to many people to be well-intentioned and guided by the science. Well, he says, observing the expansion over the past two years of the biosecurity state, I detect enormous evil in what the vanguard of progressives incessantly works to do to liberal civilization. You do understand he's using the word liberal in the sense of uh, like liberal arts or a classical liberal and not in the sense of leftist Marxist dogma. So I'll have a link to this article from Donald J. Boudreaux. Definitely worth your time if you want to dig a little bit deeper into, uh, you know, why is it that so many people are accepting of this? It's not because it makes good sense. It's not because they've been convinced by the science. It's For many, it's a matter of, well, I'm going to support it because I think this is what will be, uh, this will be a way to punish those who have supported Trump. This is one of the reasons why I I have stepped way back from politics. Because to me, so much of politics is simply about as soon as we get our hands on power, it is our duty to punish them for being against us. And that polarization has just gotten worse and worse over the years. I mean, I mean, we're already hearing calls, you know, from some quarters that uh, the 2024 elections are going to be contested and, you know, nobody's going to believe in it. Um, Hey, folks, I'm already ahead of you. I already have lost faith in the power of the election to to uh, represent really, you know, the voice of the people. How can it when the people are offered a false choice in the first place? I don't remember if it was Mark Twain. I think it's it's uh, this quote is attributed to Mark Twain, but it's something along the lines of if, if voting actually did anything, they would have outlawed it by now. I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm just saying that people who make the claim that, well, if I vote, does that not say that I'm endorsing a system which is limiting my choices to, you know, whatever it will allow me to vote for? If I if I write in somebody else's name on the ballot, they're going to throw my vote in the trash. My vote doesn't really count unless I vote for only those candidates that the system proffers. Well, in 2016, that was Hillary and Trump. In 2020, it was Trump and Biden. Now, notwithstanding, I know there are a lot of true believers who think, hey, Trump really was, you know, the best thing that could have happened to us. I'll grant you, he was better than Hillary. He was better than Biden. But I don't think his fundamental foundational understanding of liberty was strong enough to carry the day. And you can lay that on the voters more so than Trump himself. 
because I think a lot of them just had in mind, I'm either, you know, trying to punish those who oppose me or at least just hold them back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. So I'm hearing a lot of talk lately about, uh, you know, guns and concern. We've got to do something about guns. Now that everything's becoming a public health epidemic, right? Everything's being done in the name of public health. It's only a matter of time before some politician succeeds in saying, well, we've decided to treat guns like a public health problem. And because that will operate outside of the legislative process, just like the lockdowns came outside of the legislative process. Yeah, we're going to have to uh, take away people's guns or restrict their ability to purchase them or to have ammo or whatever the case may be. I mean, the people who uh, the people who are trying so hard to rule us right now through various, uh, you know, lockdown measures. They're losing their grip on the American public. And it's not so much that everybody's having a political awakening as if you look around you, how many people do you see that are just like, I am fed up with, I cannot take another day of this COVID madness. And that doesn't stop some of the people like, you know, uh, Chicago Governor Lori Lightfoot, who, nope, you want to do the things you enjoy in life, you're going to do what we say and you're going to get the vaccine. You've had your free ride, now it's time. Look, you may think the vaccine's a good idea. That is totally your prerogative. And if you want to get the vaccine, you should do it. But to use government force or to to use coercion to try to get people to take it against their will, against their informed consent, mm -mm. nope, that's straight up evil. And it needs to be called out as such. But there are people who are standing up. And as long as they have the ability to protect themselves, you're going to start hearing more calls. Well, we need to disarm these people. And that may be one of the angles they take is if you uh, if you can't prove your vaccination status, you have no right to keep and bear arms. Okie dokie. Can't wait to see how that one goes. Case in point, the people who are calling for us to be disarmed, uh, the Atlantic is now claiming the more people carrying guns tends to result in more shootings. Actually, decades of data shows that they're wrong. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, puts this myth to rest. He says, a couple of months ago, The Atlantic published an article written by staff writer David A. Graham that explores the surge of violence the United States experienced in 2020. Overall, the article, which analyzes findings from the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, is quite good. It effectively breakdowns what we know and, more importantly, what we don't know about the latest crime trends in America, which in 2020 saw a record surge in the murder rate amid a broader rise of violence. But he says on one particular point, however, David Graham is simply wrong. Graham notes that sales of firearms jumped in 2020, as did police confiscation of illegal guns, and he attempts to tie this to a surge to the surge in violence. You can ask law-abiding people, or you can ask people who do not abide by the law, why are you armed with a firearm? I need to protect myself, will be the answer. That's from Rick Rosenfeld, a criminologist at the University of Missouri at St. Louis. Now, precisely what Rosenfeld meant by this statement is unclear, but Graham's next sentence is clear. 
Quote, that creates a vicious cycle. More people carrying guns tends to result in more shootings, which in turn heightens the desire to carry a weapon for protection. When crime is decreasing, this dynamic helps it continue to fall, but once it begins to rise, the feedback loop turns ugly. End quote. Now, John Miltimore says whether this claim is Graham's or Rosenfeld's is unclear. No link or citation is offered to support this assertion. He says what we do know is that the claim that more people carrying guns tends to result in more shootings is simply untrue. As economist Mark Perry pointed out several years ago, the U.S. saw gun violence steadily decrease over multiple decades, even as gun ownership surged. According to data retrieved from the Centers for Disease Control, there were seven firearm-related homicides for every 100,000 Americans in 1993. But Perry says by 2013, the gun homicide rate had fallen by nearly 50% to only 3.6 homicides per 100,000 population. Now, this decline, Perry points out, occurred as the number of privately owned firearms in America surged from about 185 million in 1993 to 357 million in 2013. And in case you're wondering, non-fatal shootings followed a similar decline as fatal shootings, as Vox reported at the time. This is part of a larger decline in gun violence that saw a 39% decline in gun homicides between 1993 and 2011 and a staggering 69% decline in non-fatal firearms crimes. So why did the violence fall? John Miltimore says Mr. Graham, who also is reported for Newsweek and the Wall Street Journal, is no doubt a fine writer and reporter. Many of his points in the article on the FBI's recent crime report are insightful, but he's simply wrong that more people possessing guns tends to result in more shootings. The data simply do not support this claim. During this staggering decades-long trend of falling firearms crimes, gun ownership steadily increased the entire time. Now, none of this is to say that gun ownership caused the decline in gun violence. It very well may have. But that's a more difficult question to answer. For instance, Max Ehrenfraud, Frund, rather, Aaron Frund, a Harvard scientist, has posited that the decline in gun violence may have stemmed from a decline in alcoholism or more police working the streets, the bullish economy of the Reagan years, even less lead exposure. Aaron Frund says researchers don't really know for certain why the decline in violence happened, but he said one thing is clear. America has become a much less violent place. Now, the, the decline in gun violence was no doubt linked to many factors. But it's certainly possible the rise of gun ownership was among them. As Lawrence Reed has pointed out, compelling research shows guns prevent some 2.5 million crimes a year in America. That's 6,849 every day, nearly half a million of which are of a life-threatening nature. And it's not exactly hard to see why. After all, 60% of committed or convicted felons rather told researchers that they avoided committing such crimes when they suspected the target was armed. Now, if you're suspicious of these statistics, it's worth noting the Centers for Disease Control, in a report commissioned by President Obama following the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre, estimated that crimes prevented by guns, guns rather, may be even higher, up to 3 million annually. That'd be 8,200 per day. But again, We don't know for certain. These are estimates. What we do know is that guns aren't just used to commit crimes. They're also used to stop and to deter crimes. Now, in his famous essay, That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen, 
the great economist Frederick Bastiat noted there is a pervasive tendency for people to focus on the visible effects of a given policy or action and miss the unseen consequences. John Miltimore says gun control proponents often make this mistake. They focus on crimes committed with guns, that's the scene, some of which are truly the things of nightmares, but they ignore all of the unseen, all the crimes prevented by firearms. Some may not be prepared to accept the idea that guns prevent thousands of crimes in America every single day. And that's okay. But he says the Atlantic should correct its claim that more people carrying guns tends to result in more shootings. It is pure fiction. I'll have a link that I'll supply with uh, the show notes here to John Miltimore's article. Isn't that great stuff? All right, I want to share another, just a quick one here for you. If you ever found yourself wondering exactly how have we lost so much freedom in such a short time? Got a great uh, great little article here from T.K. Coleman, also from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is, this is short and sweet. How freedom is lost. First, they convince you that freedom is impractical. Well, it's nice in theory, but it's just not realistic. Then they convince you that freedom is insensitive. Well, I love liberty too, but I also love people. Then they convince you that freedom is immoral. You're being selfish by putting your individual rights before this person's pain. Then they convince you to sacrifice your freedom on the altar of the greater good. Give us the power to legislate your behavior and dictate your decisions. We promise to use that power in a way that benefits everyone. You can trust us. We know what's best. Then they destroy the world and pin the blame on you. This never would have happened if had you given up your freedoms earlier. It's your fault for being so selfish. T.K. Coleman says the cycles repeated from age to age with each new generation being duped into believing that authoritarianism was the sort of thing that could only go wrong during more primitive times. I don't care whether you're talking gun control or whether you're talking, you know, lockdowns. I think he has identified a pattern here that uh, I've, I've actually heard a lot of people on the conservative side say, well, it's nice in theory, but it's just not realistic. So it's not just the left-wingers that are, you know, saying these things. It's even people on the political right. This much I do know. For most of the problems that we face, more freedom is the answer. Tyranny may give you the illusion of liberty, or the illusion of safety, I should say, at the expense of liberty. But if you're giving up liberty, you are also giving up your safety. There's just no nice way to put it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm not here to insist that you agree with me. I'm going to do my best, though, to persuade you that it's in your interest to think as clearly and independently as possible, especially given that we live in times of crisis. And to that end... 
I would like to share with you some of the better commentaries and some of the better commentators that uh, have something to say pertaining to what's going on. Always from a principle-based standpoint rather than just simply partisan considerations, if you would like to revel in wrong think you have come to the right place, pull up a chair, find companionship, find camaraderie among people who also want to think for themselves and are willing to claim their minds in a time where there's a veritable blizzard of disinformation swirling around us 24-7. This program is made possible by great sponsors like Govern Your Income, HSL Ammo, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also Life Saving Food and Monticello College. And of course, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. I'll be telling you more about them coming up in a few moments. Have you seen the video footage or the news footage, the photographs of hours-long lines of people waiting to get tested for the Omicron variant? I mean, it's kind of curious, and I guess this is the thing. I'm hearing more and more talk from, this is from, you know, particularly from doctors in South Africa where this variant was first discovered, saying, yeah, the hospitalizations are down and deaths are down, you know, I mean, a good 80%, so... They're saying the Omicron variant's out there. It does appear to be far more contagious, but it's also very mild. And those people who experience it are comparing their symptoms to something more along the lines of a, of a common cold. Pretty crazy stuff. People are concerned, though. They want to get tested. You know, maybe it's it's cold and flu season, and so they're, they're, they've got the sniffles, and they want to get tested and see if this is what they have. Believe it or not, the massive government response and all the all the mitigation efforts that government is is engaging in is actually creating a health crisis. Got a great explanation here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. He says at the CVS down the street, the lines are very long to buy home COVID testing kits. Twenty four bucks a pop. Limit four per customer. Everybody seems to be buying four. Employees can't restock fast enough. And he says we can speculate why. Are businesses demanding negative tests from the unvaccinated? Is Omicron sweeping the country and people need to confirm? Do we have another round of disease panic happening? And he says it's most likely everybody in line has a different answer. But he says my intuition for what it's worth, this virus is everywhere. Lots of people are sick. Now, do you have some sense that we've been in this place before? Another variant, another round of panics, more restrictions, uh, models forecasting mass deaths, experts weighing in on all the things you must do, masks, 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 esks or exhortations from discredited experts demanding you do things again, even if they didn't work the last time. Jeffrey Tucker says this is just a remarkable scene. Nearly two years after locking down to crush the virus, to stop the spread, this is where we are. And it should be more than obvious that the mitigation measures did not achieve the goal and caused enormous damage. Now, the ghoul this time is Omicron. Only one death in the U.S. has been attributed to it. Cases, of course, are through the roof, and it could get worse in terms of severity. At the same time, there's a well-established and once-understood trade-off within this family of viruses between their transmissibility and their severity. More cases, meaning infections in this context, tends toward Fewer deaths. South African health officials have clearly said that so far it is not resulting in severe outcomes. It killed no one in the country in which it was discovered. Still, the weary world always seems ready for another round of panic. Nothing has ever really made sense. 
but now the complete senselessness is on hyperdrive. Universities all over the Northeast have closed and gone back to Zoom for final exams. New York events are being canceled. Israel is blocking its citizens from traveling to some 10 countries, one of which is the U.S. Lockdowns are being imposed all over Europe with ever more vicious enforcements of masks and vaccine passports. Vaccine mandates and passports are spreading from city to city. And this is with a vaccine that's been widely adopted and accepted in all the countries now locking down. Jeffrey Tucker says health authorities in Rhode Island, Maine, and uh, many other uh, states are warning of impending disaster with overwhelmed hospitals and other facilities. That's because vast numbers have quit their jobs. Or we've been told, you know, but this has nothing to do with the vaccine requirement. No. No, it's because they found better job opportunities elsewhere. He says, think about this. The staff and nurses 18 months ago were working like crazy and treated like heroes for exposing themselves to the virus. They were the fodder. They took a huge risk. They obtained natural immunity. These people should have been hired and given raises, but the CDC and National Institute of Health don't like to breathe a word about natural immunity. Instead, hospital management, pushed by government pressure, demanded that all staff get vaccinated on top of existing broad, safe, and effective natural immunity. Now, we've known about natural immunity for thousands of years. Now it's mostly denied or not spoken about. How can we account for that? Tucker says, from the point of view of doctors, nurses, and other hospital staffs, that's an insult. It's insulting enough to cause anyone to quit on the spot. So, yes, many employees just began feeling demoralized. Here's where we stand and and a look at why there's a crisis, crisis upon crisis. And he's using uh, some graphs here to show the the uh, employees at hospitals and nursing homes. And these charts show the lockdowns and mandates created the health care crisis that they strategized to prevent. So when you hear talk about hospitals are being overwhelmed, it's not a matter of there's so many patients, we just can't handle them all. It's a matter of we don't have enough staff to handle whatever patients we do have. That's a pretty good distinction to make, I would think. The ICUs are filling up, but not necessarily only from COVID. There are health problems that are being generated by lockdowns, cancer, drug overdoses, obesity, broken immune systems leading to virus vulnerability. But Jeffrey Tucker says the question is why? And the answer is that governors in every state locked down the hospitals for COVID only, with some exceptions made for urgent non-elective surgeries. Most hospitals in this country were empty for months. They were bleeding money. Spending on health care in general actually declined 8.6%. In the first half of 2020, inpatient admissions fell by 20%, while outpatient visits collapsed by 35%. Visits to the emergency room crashed, too, in some places by as much as 42%. By the fall of 2020, elective surgeries were down by 90% of where they normally would be. So the financial crisis, the lockdown crisis, the mandate crisis, the public health crisis have all pointed to one end a genuine medical care crisis. And now the Biden administration is taking the extraordinary step of forcing military doctors and nurses into hospitals. Does that make you want to go to the doctor? Not likely. In fact, for nearly two years now, many people have been avoiding the doctor, letting cancer screenings go by and so on. 
And this has produced the very public health crisis the lockdowns were intended to prevent. He says, for the first time since this disaster began in March of 2020, I feel a loss of words, an inability to explain or even describe the world in which we live. We are on the precipice of a disaster with not only a public health mess unfolding before our eyes, but now we must await a Supreme Court that's only days away from deciding on the OSHA mandate that could permanently change life in America. Many businesses are now fighting for their lives. CEOs of major airlines have pleaded to end the mask mandate that is so awful for their customers flying on their extremely clean planes. Fauci flat out said, no, we must wear masks forever, he says. Why is he, of all people, the dictator of our businesses, communities, and lives? And it all happened so quickly and shockingly. We are surrounded by the carnage of the lockdown and mandate strategy, which not only did not stop the Omicron variant, they might have made it inevitable. And yet we have major voices such as Jeremy Faust of Harvard University writing in his influential column, Am I willing to disrupt certain aspects of life temporarily when necessary to achieve a clearly stated goal? Yes. The key to define that goal is to define that goal and to implement a strategy that can deliver of it. Nobody gets tired of winning. What we're tired of is losing. Well, Jeffrey Tucker says, yes, we are losing because of a losing strategy that favored force over social functioning, models over public health wisdom, central planning over decentralized intelligence, coercion over persuasion, suppression over endemicity, and brutalism over rationality. As for temporarily, yeah, where have we heard that before? As we go into year two of two weeks to flatten the curve, he's got a good point here. I've got a link to this article in the show notes. Check it out for yourself. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to send some love in the direction of the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. You or someone you know likely wears clothes or uses a blanket or otherwise has need for sewing or quilting or embroidery. Actually, I was shocked to find out what a huge cottage industry this is and what a, what a huge um, hobby this is for people. My mom has been a quilter for years and years. This is something I haven't appreciated as much over the last 30 years or so, mainly because I haven't uh, haven't lived at home. And um, But she was showing me some of the quilts that she and some of her friends have made. Absolutely amazing stuff. And I'm telling you about this because Sewing and Quilting Center has the state-of-the-art brother sewing and embroidery machines, baby lock sergers, embroidery and sewing machines, and handy quilter long-arm quilting machines. The technology today is simply amazing. And they not only sell these machines, they also service them. They can even train you how to best use them. This is a family-owned business. Teresa and Eric Alsop are, uh, are the owners. Wonderful people. They sell fabric. They sell superior thread, cuddle material, and 108 backs. I'd really recommend if you're in the St. George, Utah area and you have any inclination whatsoever towards sewing, embroidery, or quilting, these are the folks you want to talk to. Let them know that their message reached your ears on this program. 
You know, one of the things that uh, that I have a real problem with is the uh, stature that is given to politicians and bureaucrats. I think it's a stature that they really often don't deserve. But if you've seen pictures of people, you know, uh, whenever there's like a candidate meet and greet, and man, some people are, they are literally starry-eyed, just, ah, you know, I got to touch his hand, and ah, he took a picture with me. And and Dr. Fauci's a good example of this. I mean, people have written ballads about him. We've got a Dr. Fauci action figure. Well, John Stossel has a great piece reminding us that officials who claim to be the embodiment of science probably shouldn't be taken seriously. Senator Rand Paul agrees. Fauci is not beyond reproach. John Stossel writes, when people criticize Dr. Anthony Fauci, he says, well, they're really criticizing science because I represent science. To which Stossel says, that's pretty arrogant. He says, I assume Fauci is a top-notch scientist. In fact, he says, my brother worked with him at the National Institutes of Health and respected him. But power tends to corrupt, and Fauci has been given a lot of power. His department directed tax dollars to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to modify coronaviruses in bats. Now, when Senator Rand Paul asked Fauci about funding gain-of-function research, experiments that try to learn more about a disease by making it more contagious or deadly, Fauci denied it, saying, Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about. But it turns out that Paul did know what he was talking about. The Wuhan experiments Fauci funded did not directly cause COVID-19. We know that because the molecular structure of the altered viruses is different, but gain-of-function research is risky, and deserves public discussion. He says, I like that Paul, unlike most of his colleagues, pushes for that discussion. In fact, in his new video, uh, Rand Paul says he does this because it's important not only for assessing what happened and how this pandemic arose, but also for making sure it doesn't happen again. Now, John Stossel says originally, experts claimed COVID-19 came from animals in the wet market in Wuhan. But now the experts say COVID-19 might have come from a lab. Rand Paul says this has become so polarized that you're either completely in the bag with Fauci or completely opposed to him. There's no one wanting to actually get to the truth of where this came from or understand that this could happen again. So John Stossel asked Rand Paul what he thought about Fauci's flat dismissal of anyone who criticizes him. Rand Paul replied, that's an incredibly arrogant attitude, reminiscent of the medieval church where the government representative decided what was science. Anytime you have government dogma saying they are science or government bureaucrats who claim that this is the one and perfect truth, we should run headlong away, end quote. Now, Stossel says today our government wants to mandate vaccines in private workplaces. The administration claims that's necessary because not enough people are vaccinated. Rand Paul calls that a big lie. He says, we are not stupid. The whole idea of collectivism is that people are too stupid to make their own decisions. Individuals will make rational decisions and do. So John Stossel pushed back and said, well, but some people are stupid. Is there no point where the government does have a right to force a vaccination? Rand Paul says, I am not forever forcing someone to take medical care. Okay, well, what about kids? Paul points out the death rate among children is less than the seasonal flu. We never mandated that kids get vaccinated for the seasonal flu, even though they get like 49 different vaccines. Can we not leave some choice for parents and kids? John Stossel says, well, I hope so, but I push back again. Well, what if it's airborne Ebola? Does government ever have the right to say, you must take this medicine? No, says Paul. 
Once you let government in the door to make those decisions, they make onerous decisions. And John Stossel agrees with him and says they do. He says, I'm a libertarian. I want government out of my life. But an epidemic is the rare exception where some government force may be appropriate. If a disease is vicious and contagious and a medicine clearly reduces the spread, I want government to protect me from reckless people like it protects me from murderers. Now, that's not to say that America needs a vaccine mandate. There's already been far too much government force during this pandemic already. He says, it's good to question the government's rules. I'm glad Paul does that. When it comes to epidemics, I won't say never. Okay, I can respect John Stossel, even if I disagree with him on this one, because I would say never. And maybe that's taking, you know, too hard a line for some people's sensibilities, but you have to ask yourself, where does it lead? And that's the, that's the kind of thinking that a lot of people just aren't, aren't willing to consider. Look, I saw somebody say this the other day, and, and I agree with, with what she was saying. She said something along the lines of, you know, when, when people were, um, were upset that I wasn't wearing the mask, they would ask me, why is this the hill you've chosen to die on? And I love her answer. She says, uh, it wasn't the hill I chose to die on. It's merely the first battle that I chose to stand up in so we wouldn't have to get to a hill where I would have to die on it. But guess what? We are fast approaching the hill upon which uh, we may well die. And I consider myself one of those people. The, the hill that I'm willing to die on is you will not force a vaccination on me. You won't. If you cannot persuade me and you feel like you've got to use government force to make me do something, no, I will, I will protect myself, even to my own death. Now, I know that sounds like a very radical thing to suggest, and not everybody's going to agree with it, but the point is many of us saw where this would lead. I'm certainly not alone. People have been sounding the warnings for a long, long time. And, and it, it's frustrating because, you know, people do question, well, why would you do this? Why is this so, why do you have to be so radical? Look, I've tried to do it as gently as I can. And for me, one of the hardest things is I've talked about on this show, um, when, when the mask mandates were, were coming down at the state and local level and even from religious leaders, I was one of the very few people who would not wear a mask in church. And I wasn't doing it to show, look, I'm superior to everybody else, and the rules don't apply to me. My conscience was saying, someone has got to be willing to stand up and push back gently and show that not everybody is going to give in. It's uncomfortable. You know this. If you've, if you've done it, you understand. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to walk into a store and be, you know, the only person unmasked, you know, especially in a place where masks are ubiquitous. People start calling you out. People want to approach you and confront you. Where's your mask? Why aren't you? Why, what makes you think you're so special? The thing they don't get, the thing that they fail to see is the people who are trying to stand up against these mandates are just standing up for their own rights. They are, in fact, standing up for everyone's rights. The ones that apparently a large majority of people are either too scared to stand up for or simply don't know enough about their rights to stand up for them. I'm not sure how we resolve it, but 
I will keep standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Want to send some love out in the direction of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Such a crazy real estate market right now. I just saw where in St. George, Utah, for instance, the median home purchase price right now, $500,000. Wow. I mean, it's it's a beautiful place. I can understand why people want to be there. But uh, what this means is there's very, very stiff competition for any homes that actually come on the market. And if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, particularly to the state of Utah, I would recommend get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, Heather and her team have the stability and the clout and decades of experience to get you the loan you need and to make it happen quickly, which is important. You cannot, you know, stall and and wait for your financing to come through because someone will snatch that home up right out from underneath you. So if you want to go into the situation prepared, you find the home of your dreams, make sure that first you have talked to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, stop by 619 South Bluff Street Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I've been spending some time, as I was pulling these show notes together, just pondering, how exactly do we descend from a state of freedom into tyranny? And I'm going to use some pretty broad generalization language here, so try not to get too offended or too hung up on the details. But if you want to understand how democracy devolves into tyranny, All you have to do is start by studying history. We used to to use a little chart back when I was in school. I think it was called Plato's Digression. And it it would show how you can go from uh, monarchy to tyranny or from, is it democracy to tyranny to monarchy? I can't remember. It's, It's been a long time since I've looked at the chart. But the bottom line is there are some very observable patterns that, that can be spotted here. And one of the things you have to know is that even uh, even in a democratic society, just because it's been established does not mean, and thus it shall always be so. It's a temporary thing. And this is why Jeff Thomas's article is titled The Sandcastle. Jeff is the blogger at International Man. This, I thought, was uh, gave a nice little dose of history as well as some common sense about how we decline from democracy to tyranny, which he says is both uh, an unnatural and inevitable progression. Now he says that's not a pleasant thought to have to consider, but it is a fact nonetheless. In every case, a democracy will deteriorate as a result of the electorate accepting the loss of freedom in trade for largesse from their government. Now that process could be fascism, socialism, communism, a whole basket of isms, but tyranny is the inevitable endgame of democracy. Like the destruction of a sandcastle by the incoming tide, it requires time to transpire. But he says in time, the democracy, like the sandcastle, will be washed away in its entirety. Now, why should this be so? Well, he says, as I commented some years ago, the concept of government is that the people grant to a small group of individuals the ability to establish and maintain controls over them. But the inherent flaw in such a concept is, 
is that any government will invariably and continually expand upon its controls, resulting in the ever-diminishing freedom of those who granted them the power. Unfortunately, there will always be those who wish to rule, and there will always be a majority of voters who are complacent enough and naive enough to allow their freedoms to be slowly removed. This adverb, slowly, is the key by which the removal of freedoms is achieved. You've heard the old adage of boiling a frog is that the frog will jump out of the pot if it's filled with hot water, but if the water is lukewarm and the temperature is is, uh, slowly raised, he'll gradually grow accustomed to the temperature change and will inadvertently allow himself to be boiled. So let's have a look at Thomas Jefferson's assessment of this technique. Even under the best forms of government, those entrusted with power have in time and by slow operations perverted it into tyranny. Now, Jeff Thomas says, look, Mr. Jefferson was a true visionary. He knew, even as he was penning the Declaration of Independence and portions of the Constitution, that his proclamations, even if they were accepted by his fellow founding fathers, would not last. By the way, for you purists to say, now, Thomas Jefferson wasn't there to write the Constitution. Just understand, his thinking contributed, though, to the, the thinking of those who did. So, he recommended repeated revolutions to counter the inevitable tendency by political leaders to continually vie for the removal of the freedoms from their constituents. Now, about the time that Mr. Jefferson made the above comment, Alexander Teitler, a Scottish economist and historian, commented on the new American experiment in democracy, and he's credited as saying, a democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. And Jeff Thomas asks, so was each of the gentlemen above throwing a dart at a board, or did they have some kind of crystal ball? He says, well, actually, neither. Each was a keen student of history. Each knew that the pattern, by the end of the 18th century, had already repeated itself time and time again. In fact, as early as the 4th century B.C., Plato had quoted Socrates as having stated to Adiamantus, tyranny naturally arises out of democracy, and the most aggravated form of tyranny and slavery comes out of the most extreme form of liberty. Today, much of what was called the free world just a half century ago has deteriorated into a combination of residual capitalism, which has been largely and increasingly buried by socialism and fascism. Now, Jeff Thomas says, look, it should be mentioned that the oft-misinterpreted definition of fascism is the joint rule by corporate and state, a condition that's now manifestly in place in much of the former free world. Today, many people perceive fascism as a tyrannical condition that's suddenly imposed by a dictator. But this is rarely the case. Fascism is, in fact, a logical step. Just as voters succumb over time to the promises of socialism, so a parallel decline occurs as fascism slowly replaces capitalism. Fascism may appear to be capitalism, but it's the antithesis of a free market. As Vladimir Lenin rightly stated, fascism is capitalism in decline. See, Comrade Lenin understood the value of fascism for political leaders, Whilst he retained a close relationship with New York and London bankers and a healthy capitalist market was tapped into for Soviet-era imports, he was aware that his power base depended largely 
upon denying capitalism to his minions. So from the above quotations, we may see that there's been a fairly erudite group of folks out there who have commented on this topic over the last 2,500 years. They agree that democracies like sandcastles never last. They generally begin promisingly, but given enough time, any government will erode democracy as quickly as the political leaders can get away with it. And that progression always ends in tyranny. So we're presently at a historical juncture, a time in which much of the former free world is in the final stages of decay and approaching the tyranny stage. At this point, the process tends to speed up. We can observe this as we see an increase in the laws being passed to control the population, increased taxation, increased regulation, and increased promises of largesse from the government that they don't have the funding to deliver. When when any government reaches this stage, it knows only too well that it will not deliver and that when the lie is exposed, the populace will be hopping mad. Therefore, just before the endgame, any government can be expected to ramp up its police state. The demonstrations by governments that they're doing, doing so are now seen regularly. Raids by SWAT teams in situations where just a small number of authorities could handle the situation just as well. Displays of armed forces in the street, including armored vehicles in cases of disruption. In London, Ferguson, Paris, Boston, etc., the authoritarian displays have become ever more frequent. All that's now necessary is a series of events, whether staged or real, to suggest domestic terrorism in several locations at roughly the same time. A state of national emergency may then be declared for the safety of the people. And it's this justification that will assure the success of tyranny. Historically, the majority of people in any country, in any county, in any area, choose the illusion of safety over freedom. As John Adams was fond of saying, those who would trade freedom for safety will have neither. Jeff Thomas says, from this point on, it would be wise for anyone who lives in the European Union, the U.S., the U.K., etc., to watch events closely. If a rash of domestic terrorism appears suddenly, it could well be the harbinger that governor, the government rather has reached the tipping point when tyranny under the guise of protecting the safety of the people is inaugurated. So the most essential takeaway here is that although some may object even violently, the majority of the people will trade their freedom for the promise of safety. At least you have the advantage of having been warned, right? As well as the disadvantage of ever being able to say, but nobody said anything. Because my friend... It has been said. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Again, if you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, it's a a daily collection, I would guess, uh, sometimes eight or nine different articles or links to commentators that I'm interviewing that uh, will give you some definite food for thought. You don't have to agree with any of it. I'm not insisting this is the only information you can trust, but I will tell you, I I put in a fair day's work every day, as in every spare moment that I have, I am looking for the best information I can find. And I, I have to give credit where credit's due. I have wonderful listeners like you who, when you come across something interesting, you come across an article, will send it to me. 
It's very easy to do. You can connect with me through my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You can subscribe for my show notes through that website. I so appreciate This is a cooperative effort, okay? I don't make any kind of claim. I'm single-handedly out here, you know, trying to turn the tide against tyranny. I'm definitely trying to do my part, but I'm also trying to magnify the efforts of a lot of other people who are doing everything in their power to stand up for what's right. In fact, let's take just a moment here and talk about, okay, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on over which you and I don't have control. What about the things over which we do have control? And I'm not necessarily talking about, so therefore, you know, buy more beans and bullets and band-aids and hunker in your bunker until it's all over. I don't think you can change the world by absolutely separating yourself from it. But at the same time, I'm going to suggest that there are times where it may be appropriate to step back and not participate. For instance, large-scale demonstrations and protests. I know it feels good to go out there and feel the solidarity of being part of something bigger than yourself. Not going to deny it. There's, there's an appeal to that, and it's good to know that you're meeting with other like-minded people. However, I think this is the kind of thing that we're going to see decisively turned against us at some point, like we did back on January 6th. I know the political class and the chattering class still persist on calling it an insurrection, but if that was an insurrection, that was the crappiest insurrection or attempted insurrection in world history. And it still doesn't account for why have we not heard anything? Why has there been no official response to queries about, hey, how many of those people making their way into the Capitol, forcibly some, the rest just walking in or being waved in by police, how many of those people were actually federal informants. I've seen the video, and I'm sure many of you have seen the video as well, of the people who first breached the Capitol, the ones who first broke windows or doors and got inside. Those are not average Trump supporter protesters out there to protest what they thought was a crooked election. The individuals who came in there had very similar dress, very similar gear, but more importantly... They had an economy of movement that showed they were very well trained. They did not waste a single motion. They knew exactly what they were doing, and they moved with purpose. And as far as I know, none of those individuals have been called to account. Look, I'm not trying to spin some conspiracy theories here. I'm just saying there's a lot that doesn't add up, especially when you consider just a few weeks earlier There were these broad claims of, oh, well, you know, 13 people were planning on kidnapping the governor of Michigan and having a trial and executing her and whatnot. And then you find out most of the people involved in that conspiracy were, in fact, federal informants, agents provocateur. All I'm suggesting is the government has a really bad habit, particularly the FBI has a very bad habit of saving us from monsters that it created itself. The more interaction you have with people who are out there in the streets, the more likely it is to get caught up in mob mentality. And it's, you know, it's not just a matter of, you know, somebody's out there, you know, egging people on. There's some very serious psychological training that goes into how to manipulate and to to uh, provoke responses from the crowds. Beware. Beware of people who are urging you, hey, come and stand with us. Come on, we're going to take to the streets. We're going to take this country back. 
Now, the alternative isn't to do nothing, but it's to recognize most likely the influence that you're going to be able to, to exert is going to come in different areas than simply, you know, protesting, you know, at the state capitol or protesting in Washington, D.C. Just a thought. I still maintain the most important thing any one of us can do right now is work on becoming the best version of yourself that you can be, the truest version of yourself. Get right with God, as my friend Joe Carey would say. You do that, and I promise you, the pieces will fall into place for you. And you may actually find God will, you know, nudge you to do things and to stand in ways you may not have anticipated. But if God's working with you, how can you fail? Just a thought. Now, look, one final thought here. I get it. Not everybody wants to be a psychic, but you know what? It feels pretty good sometimes to be paying close enough attention to be able to predict certain outcomes. Ken McManigal has a great piece on how predictions take paying attention. He says, this past spring, I noticed a bigger than usual crop of the plant that becomes tumbleweeds when it dies and the wind blows. And he says, I told a few people, be ready for an epic tumbleweed season this year. Then, he says, I failed to see many tumbleweeds last month, and I wondered what had happened to them all. Well, it turns out they all went to Oasis State Park to plot their attack. So, I was right about the bumper crop, but I missed where they were going, so I can't win them all. His point is, some things are easy to predict based on what you see happening in the world around you, but you have to pay attention to your surroundings. So when you watch government counterfeiting trillions of dollars and calling it a stimulus, you can predict inflation. I predicted it early in the pandemic overreaction and got scolded mightily for doing so, but it's happening. No one who took me to task for the warning of inflation on the horizon has apologized, so he says, I'm not going to hold my breath. When governments get away with telling people what to wear, ordering them to inject sketchy substances into their bodies, and dictating whether they can open their business, go to work, or even leave the house, you can predict authoritarianism is on the rise. It's being scaled back in some places, but it's getting worse in others. And he says people have the choice as to whether it continues or gets stamped out. And he says, I have no prediction on how that will play out. Now, you could also have predicted the shortages of goods based on a combination of the authoritarian central planning schemes and too much efficiency. Central planning never worked in the Soviet Union, and it won't work in America. It seems as though the market is routing about around the damage caused by government interference, and at least for now, the shortages aren't as bad as they could be. But he says it's an ongoing battle, and I predict if the market doesn't win, there will be rough times ahead. Now, if you understand how viruses evolve, you could have easily predicted the end of COVID as a real threat. If you understand how government works, you could have predicted COVID's continued usefulness as a political ploy. The bottom line, says Kent McManigal, is the best predictions happen when you notice what's going on around you and view things realistically based on how the universe works. You do have to be paying attention, though. I love this piece, and I and actually I really have great respect for Kent McManigal for his ability to just say it as succinctly as possible. And in in summary, I think this is this is probably what this show and other shows like it are really trying to accomplish. I'm not trying to run around like Chicken Little and tell you the sky is falling down, but I am desperately urging people, please pay attention. Do your own homework. 
Think as clearly and independently as you can about what's going on around us and take the steps that you feel are most necessary to solidify your position and to to secure yourself and to be self-reliant. Not just in a temporal sense, but emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. To know who you are and to know what you stand for. You have to be paying attention. Now, some people may hear, you know, paying attention and think, therefore, I must be glued to the news networks 24-7. That would be a mistake. I consider myself reasonably well-informed, but I will tell you that I consume almost nothing in terms of mass media these days. Most of what I see of mass media comes in the form of, you know, small clips that someone has pointed out or posted to Twitter. And I consider Twitter one of the one of the great tools for helping to uh, keep me informed without immersing me in, you know, the the cesspool that uh, most of our press is today. So use the tools that you have available to you, use them wisely and and above all, do not miss an opportunity to unplug yourself from the matrix every so often and just you know, get away from all the electronic media, yes, including this one, and let your uh, antenna recalibrate. Let your senses recalibrate to where you can see the good, the noble, you know, the beautiful things that are all around you. It doesn't take very long. A little bit of a media fast, and you'd be surprised how quickly the world starts looking normal again. In the meantime, stay strong, be true. We'll see you next time. This is The Brian Hyde Show.